Will you please turn to John chapter 10, the Gospel of John chapter 10. We're going to finish up chapter 10 this morning. If you grab the blue Bible, that's page 896. A burgundy Bible, that's 1,141. If you don't have a Bible and you grab one of those Bibles, please keep that Bible. That is our gift to you. The subtitle to our series in the Gospel of John is Signs of Life that you may believe that Jesus is the Savior. No shocker, Doug and I just snatched that from John's purpose statement for his gospel found in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus does all sorts of signs, miraculous works throughout the gospel of John. In chapter two, Jesus turned the water into wine. In chapter four, he healed the royal official's son. In chapter five, he healed the paralytic at Bethesda. In the beginning of chapter six, he fed the 5,000. At the end of chapter six, he walked on water. And then most recently in John chapter nine, he gave sight to the man born blind. These miracles were like neon signs pointing to Jesus' true identity as the Christ. And John says they were recorded for this purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, everything, everything in, God, in John's gospel hinges around people seeing and believing the true identity of Jesus as revealed in his signs. And so no surprise, the tension that Jesus' opponents often provide throughout the gospel is centered on Jesus' identity. And Jesus' identity was the topic of discussion at the end of our passage last week in verses 19 through 20. And it is the central theme for our passage this Sunday. The Jews confront Jesus about his identity and demand that he tells them plainly if he's the Christ. The Jews that heard what Jesus had to say in this passage originally, and everyone, to include us, who reads this now, are to hear and believe that Jesus is not simply God's Messiah, but that Jesus is truly God. We're called to believe that Jesus is not simply God's Messiah, but that Jesus is truly God. <clears throat> Our passage has uh, a simple outline. It's based on the flow of the dialogue. And as you'll find in your sermon notes, we'll see a confrontational demand, a clear answer, a condemning response, a counter-defense, and a compelling case of faith. But before we get to any of that, our passage has a context. Follow along, with, follow along with me as I read verses 22 through 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the context is winter. At the time at which the Feast of Dedication took place, it is in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. Typically in John's gospel, there is uh, symbolism between the feast that is mentioned and the situation at hand. 
there's symbolism between the feast that is mentioned and then the situation, what's actually going on. Here we have the Feast of Dedication. This feast commemorated the temple being recaptured and rededicated in 165 BC after it had been overtaken in 167 BC. Here's what happened. In 167 BC, the emperor of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, was making moves to expand his kingdom. And one of those moves was southward into the nation of Israel. Now, part of his rule was establishing a national religion, which did not include Israel's. And so he replaced worship of God in the temple with worship of the Greek gods. And it is recorded that he even made uh, sacrifices on the temple altar to Zeus. Well, two years after it was overtaken, under the leadership of Judas Maccabees, Judas the Hammer, uh, God raised up a small band of people under his leadership, and they, they recaptured and reclaimed the temple and Jerusalem for God. And so the Feast of Dedication commemorated the temple being recaptured and rededicated to God. The Jewish people celebrated the rededication for eight days, and then it was decreed that this, that this celebration would happen every year at the same time. Now, I think most of us are actually fairly, at least somewhat, familiar with this dedication by its more popular name, Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. One commentator says, the festival commemorated national deliverance, a political victory over pagan forces at a time when God's temple, God's people, and God himself were being challenged. It was the last and greatest deliverance of Israel that the Jews had known. In their minds, it was close to a second exodus. And the great symbolism, the sad, ironic symbolism, is that the one who would provide them their greatest deliverance, their greatest exodus, the one who would free them from their most oppressive enemies, of Satan and sin was standing right in front of them in his temple and they didn't know his true identity. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised deliverer is standing right in front of them and they make a confrontational demand. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The, the Jews surrounded him, and most certainly the Greek term here is to give us this idea that they, that they encircled him with hostile intent. And out of impatience, they confront Jesus and demand that he finally tell them plainly, once and for all, if you're the Christ, then just say so. Well, Jesus provides them a clear answer, starting in verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. Stop. Now, what's interesting is that nowhere in John's gospel, in any sort of public conversation with the Jewish leaders, does Jesus plainly, succinctly, obviously declare that he's the Messiah. And frankly, he wouldn't have. Why is that? 
Well, it'd become popular belief amongst the Jews that the Messiah uh, would be a, a Messiah of political and a military construct. And so for Jesus to claim that he was the Messiah, in their minds, he would have been claiming that he was this political and military construct. That's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. Indeed, that's not the the Messiah that God sent. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I told you already, and yet he didn't, not with words, but with actions, Jesus told them clearly. Verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. We, we, we understand this because we understand that there are times when actions do speak louder and more clearly than words do. Jesus had performed all sorts of miraculous works. We, we mentioned those early, and they functioned like neon signs declaring Jesus' true identity as the Christ. There were many people that saw them for what they were and believed in Jesus and received eternal life. But that's not the case with these Jews. And why? Starting in verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say that their problem is an intellectual one, as if studying more scripture would solve their problem. Nor does Jesus say that their unbelief is due to a matter of the will, as if you are not my sheep because you haven't decided to become one yet. No, 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 no. Jesus says, you do not believe for this reason, you are not among my sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying, someone doesn't believe in order to become my sheep. Rather, someone believes because they are my sheep. Belief in Jesus is evidence that someone is Jesus' sheep. Belief is an ability only found in Jesus' sheep. Those who have been sovereignly born again by the Holy Spirit, John 3, 3 through 8. Jesus goes on, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He tells these unbelieving Jews, I know my sheep, and they respond very differently than you do. They respond in belief. They hear my voice, and they respond in ongoing obedience. They follow me. Listen, Jesus' messiahship can only be recognized by his sheep. These Jews do not believe in Jesus because they are not among his sheep. Jesus concludes his answer by clearly telling the Jews what he's about and who he is. So here we go. He's going to take it on home. What he's about and who he is. Starting in verse 28, I give them, that's my sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. All right, first, what he's about. Jesus' messianic mission was about obtaining and granting eternal life for his sheep and then holding on to his sheep for all eternity. 
Verse 28 says, I give them, not they take from me. Eternal life is a gift given by the Messiah. He is the one who victoriously brought about spiritual deliverance for his people. And those whom he gives his victory to, he promises to securely hold on to them for all eternity. And what's more, verse 29 says that our eternal salvation rests in God the Father's eternal decree. Jesus gifts eternal life to all those that the Father has given him. In John 17, one through two, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then listen, since you have given him all authority over all flesh, here's the authority, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see, if you're a believer in Christ, it is because God chose you before the foundation of the world, then gifted you to his son, who in turn gifted you eternal life. The the whole of redemptive history is how God the Father is seeking and saving a people for his son through his son. And there's no one greater than God the Father. Did you notice it said no one will snatch them from the Son's hand? Because no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Jesus clearly tells the Jews what his messianic mission is about. Did you notice how verse 28 and 29 complement each other in showing the united work of the Son and the Father as it pertains to salvation. This united work leads Jesus to clearly tell the Jews who he is. So we talked about what he's done, what his mission is, and now who he is. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. See, in effect, Jesus echoing the fundamental confession found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is not simply saying that he and the Father are one in their purpose and will and action, though they are. Jesus is conveying that he and the Father are one in or united in essence, nature, and being. Jesus is claiming deity. Jesus is saying that he is truly God. Jesus clearly tells these Jews what his messianic mission was about, obtaining and granting eternal salvation for his sheep and securely holding on to his sheep for all eternity. And then Jesus clearly tells them who he is. I am truly God. D.A. Carson says, the Jews had asked for a plain statement that would clarify whether or not he was the Messiah. (laughs) And Jesus gave them far more. Let's just, let's just pause for a moment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is there any better news for wayward and fickle people like us than to hear our God promise us that we will never perish, 
and that no one will nor can snatch us from his sovereign hand. Some of, the, some of the sweetest promises that the Savior makes to his people are found in these verses. Those whom Jesus gifts eternal life will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. And, and here's the implication. L- listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, our confidence to persevere to the end is not found in our feeble hold on Christ, but is found in Christ's firm grip on us. Oh, that's sweet. Lines from the hymn we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast, wonderfully declare these promises. When when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. I need need these these calming, securing, assuring promise of God. What, What about you? Do you ever feel like your faith will fail? Or that Satan may prevail? Does does your love for Jesus ever go cold? Brothers and sisters, there's no trauma, no tragedy, No amount of depression, nor suffering, nor oppression, nor injustice, no valley too deep that can snatch you from the Savior's hand. J.C. Ryle spoke to this when he wrote, Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost or cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul, they may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier, and none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hand. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we're struggling with sin and tempted to, be, to despair, listen, our, our hope is not found in looking to how firm our grip is on Christ. It is found in looking to how firm his grip is on us. Well, the Jews demanded for Jesus to be plain with them, and Jesus provided a clear answer. I and the Father are one. It was much more than what they asked for. And so the the Jews condemningly respond to Jesus. Starting in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, and so they decided they were going to execute him right on the spot. But abruptly, Jesus interjects. Verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? In other words, what's, what's the charge and basis for this execution? Is it because my Father had me heal somebody? The Jewish leaders answer, verse 33, 
It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jews didn't care about Jesus' good works. He could do those all day. They condemningly, they were, going, they were condemning him to death because of blasphemy. Jesus, who, as they said, being a man, made himself out to be God. And they were right. He did. But, but Jesus doesn't run, he doesn't flee at this point. Jesus makes a counter-defense to their condemning response, starting in verse 34. Is it not written in your law? Law can refer to as it is here in regards to the whole Old Testament. So, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he, that's, that's God, called them God's to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of whom him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Well, let's pause there. Jesus' answer is to direct them to Scripture. No, Jesus' answer is to direct them to Scripture. Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. Psalm 82 is a judgment by God on the rulers of Israel. The, the rulers and judges over Israel are judging unjustly, and they are showing favoritism to those who are doing evil, and God judges them for their wickedness. And in verse 6, God says this to, to the wicked rulers, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. In other words, when God calls them lowercase g gods and sons of the Most High, he's saying, you are like gods among men because you are my representatives. But Verse seven, here's the judgment. God says, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. They, they may be like gods, but they are not God. They are wicked and sinful, and they will die like any man. So let's back to John. What's Jesus doing here? What's his logic? His argument is lesser to greater and he's saying, if God could use the term gods for those who were clearly lesser than God, then couldn't God also use the term son of God for one greater whom he, quote, consecrated and sent into the world? Kevin DeYoung is, is helpful here. He says, Jesus isn't trying to prove his divinity from Psalm 82. He, he's trying to puncture the pretensions of his adversaries. In other words, Jesus is saying, you are so hung up on the word God, but right here in the scriptures, these men were called gods. You're going to have to do better than that to prosecute me merely because of a title. And, and then just in case the Jews wanted to try some sort of like exegetical gymnastics to diminish or get around this passage that Jesus brought up, Jesus says this, it was almost as a parathetical. He says, the scripture cannot be broken. The word of God and scripture in verse 35 are the same, synonymous language here. When Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken, he's saying scripture cannot be diminished, scripture cannot be nullified, scripture cannot be proven false, because scripture is the very word of God. I mean, in other words, 
Jesus is letting them know, you may not like the obscure passage I brought up, but you can't dismiss it out of inconvenience. It is the word of God. And Jesus finishes his counter defense. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus goes back to where he started, his works. And he says, look, objectively consider these miraculous works that I'm doing. They are inarguably representative of my Father's work. No one has ever done anything like this before. It's like he's saying, there's something greater going on here. And even if you don't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth, believe the works that are coming out of my ministry. They will reveal to you that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And and please don't miss this. Don't, Don't miss the heart of our Savior. These are folks who time and again antagonistically go after Jesus. They're relentless. Indeed, they look for any, any seemingly justifiable way to kill him. And, and yet, Jesus pleads for them to believe and receive eternal life. <laughs> what amazing grace. But sadly, verse 39 Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus made his, his counter defense, but they're not his sheep. They, they don't have ears to hear his voice. And so they seek to arrest him still. Friends, let's just pause again and, and take a moment and strengthen our belief in and our resolve in that This is the very word of God. In in other words, let's let's take a moment and let's, let's meditate on the scripture cannot be broken. A few years back, I read Kevin DeYoung's fabulous little book, Taking God at His Word. I commend it to you. There's two copies on the wall out there in the lobby if you want to peruse it. And Kevin concludes the chapter entitled Christ's Unbreakable Bible by saying something that I just can't say better, so I'm going to just read it to you. I believe this will encourage and edify us. <clears throat> Jesus held scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with the language of scripture. He easily alluded to scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil and being killed on the cross, he quoted scripture. His mission was to fulfill scripture. And his teaching always upheld scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He never for a moment accepted the legitimacy of anyone, anywhere, violating, ignoring, refining, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, all of it. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, and the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. 
He affirmed the human authorships of scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict scripture or stand above scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What scripture says, God says. And what God said was recorded infallibly in scripture. It is impossible to revere scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. Jesus submitted his will to the scriptures, submitted his brain to studying the scriptures, and humbled his heart to obey the scriptures. The Lord Jesus, God's son and our savior, believed his Bible was the word of God down to the sentences, the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letters, to the tiniest specks, and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in his holy Bible could ever be broken. Friends, we, we have before us the authoritative, all-sufficient, life-giving words of the creator of the universe. And the very Jesus who submitted his life to them, finding them necessary, sufficient, clear, and the final word on all things is calling you and I to do the same thing. And here's the good news. Jesus wants to help us do just that. Through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus wants to help us. Jesus wants to help us to have the very same attitude of reverence and submission to Scripture. Well, it wasn't Jesus' time yet, so he escapes from their hands, starting in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptized at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Verse 42, and many believed in him there. This is an amazing closure with a passage that's just filled with nothing but controversy and people rejecting Jesus. We end with many people believing in Jesus. This is a, a fascinating and amazing turn of events. It is a compelling case of faith. I, I could have just called this, this set of verses a case of faith, but the reality is every case of faith is compelling. What makes faith compelling is the, the who and the what. Who it is that got saved and what saved them. Who, who it is that got saved and what saved them. First, who, who were these folks? These folks weren't the pretentious religious elite in Jerusalem. John goes out of his way in the setting of this particular scene here to let us know that in verse 40. He says it's not Jerusalem. It's the place across the Jordan where John the Baptist had been baptizing at first. In other words, this was the unpretentious fertile soil that John the Baptist cultivated about Jesus and for Jesus. This was the unpretentious, fertile soil that John cultivated about Jesus and for Jesus. These folks were not 
They were the non-religious elite. They, they weren't the intellectuals. They didn't have the, the, the seminary degree from the temple. These folks were just a, a bunch of religious nobodies, and they knew it because the folks in Jerusalem let them know it. But you know who they were? They were Jesus' sheep. They were Jesus' sheep. And, and we know that to be true because in verse 42, it says, many believed in him there. Remember back in verse 25, we said one doesn't believe in order to become a sheep. One believes because they are a sheep. Belief is evidence that you are already something. You are already a sheep. And so who are they? They're Jesus' sheep. The Apostle Paul spoke of those who come to faith in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. He wrote, For consider your calling, your, your salvation calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, faith is compelling when we see who it is that got saved because there's nothing compelling about them. That's the compelling part. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's nothing compelling about us. There was nothing commendable that we could have presented before God and say, Here's why I get to stand before your holy throne. There's nothing, not a zip, zero. And so it was with these folks too. There was nothing compelling about who they were, and yet Jesus saves them. That's a compelling case of faith. Second, what makes this a compelling case of faith is what saved them. In other words, what did these folks hear and see? And we, we see this in verse 41. Many came to Jesus and said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Now, we haven't seen John since chapter three. We haven't heard about John since chapter five. And at this point, chronologically speaking, the, the, the brother's dead. But where Jesus had come was the place where John the Baptist had done his ministry. These folks mentioned that John didn't perform a single sign. Nevertheless, John the Baptist was esteemed because of what he said. It's not what John did. He didn't do anything compelling. It's what John said that was compelling. John the Baptist, through his preaching, pointed to and magnified Jesus as the Christ, as the Lamb of God. John spoke the truth about Jesus, and, and these people saw that John's words were true. They recognized Jesus. They heard his voice, and, and even better, they were known by their shepherd. Remember verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They're, they're Jesus' sheep and they are known by their shepherd. What saves them is compelling about their faith. 
John did nothing compelling. He, he did no sign, but the gospel that he preached was compelling. Listen to how Paul spoke about the ironically compelling message of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, faith is compelling when we see what is used to save a person. Paul describes the message of the gospel, the message that saves, the message that, that John preached as folly. But ironically, the compelling part is the message of folly to the world is the message of the saving work of Christ, the power and wisdom of God for those who are being saved by it. You see, something that the world finds foolish is the very thing that God uses to powerfully save. And that's compelling. This is a compelling case of faith, like all faith. Jesus saves those who are uncompelling. They had nothing to commend themselves before God with, and Jesus uses the message of the gospel, which is considered uncompelling by the world, to powerfully save. What a compelling case of faith. As we close this morning, let's go back to where we started. There's a lot of claims that this passage makes on our lives, and none greater than that we are called to believe that Jesus is not simply the Messiah, but that Jesus is truly God. Jesus is not simply God's Messiah. He is God in flesh. He and the Father are one. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, thank you for being here. We've we've done an awful lot of talking about Jesus. And that's because it's all about Jesus. Jesus, as John said back in chapter one, is God in flesh. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. But John the Baptist also said, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus Christ died on the cross to resolve my greatest problem and your greatest problem in your sin. Our our sin has us standing condemned before the holy God of the universe. But Jesus Christ willingly put himself on the cross and died for your sins and my sins, past, present, and future, so that we might stand before God with the blood of Jesus having washed us clean. And so the call is is repent from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so kind to give us scriptures like this. Scriptures that proclaim Christ as God, proclaim to us your saving work. Thank you. You, you, you have accomplished this great salvation from start to finish. <laughs> you grant eternal life, and then those whom you grant eternal life to, you hold on to for all eternity. What good news. What good news. Without, without your persevering grace working in our lives, we would for sure fall away. But you uphold us. You make promises to us that are secure in Christ's life, death, and resurrection and are real and true for all those who are united to him by faith. Give us help to continue to meditate and live in the good of the truths that we have um, seen this morning in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.